I'm looking at this passage today is because I think this is important because sometimes if we is uh, how we view suffering sometimes not only affect our own lives we could right away think okay we have a wrong view we'll be depressed we'll be lonely anxious suicidal all of that but I think there's another side of a wrong view of suffering that perhaps we don't when we if we only think about ourselves we don't even realize that if we have a wrong view of suffering sometimes we can end up not only if, we're, if we suffer we will have a wrong view. We'll suffer ourselves even more, things that are brought upon ourselves, a wrong view. But also, if we have a wrong view of suffering, we could easily, when we look at someone else suffering, we could easily say what? Oh, whoa. A wrong view, and also lead to many things, including ignorance, including hostility to the person that's suffering. And ultimately, what I'm most concerned with, because everything in our church is spiritual, is we're blinded to Jesus, okay? Let me give an example. Let's just give an example real quick. You might have a wrong view of suffering in the sense that you say, okay, uh, you know, you're so about yourself that when you see someone has a job, that therefore they ended up having a sickness because maybe they have to work in the hospital as a nurse. You say, see, I told you that person should have never, ever been a nurse, should never have been a PA, should have never been a doctor. By the way, uh, I know um, uh, Jin and I talked about this. There was a comedian from Malaysia that had a really interesting point, right? I'm going to speak a little bit now, maybe a little, since I'm, I'm, I'm not stereotyping or anything, but I know we go to a church that primarily have Chinese people, yes? And this comedian made this good point. Chinese people want their sons to be what? And do, uh, daughters to be what? A doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, right? Okay? But then, we're, you know, the joke was also as well, like, hey, how could it be that, you know, like everyone wants their kid to be doctors. But sometimes as in the Asian Chinese culture, we could be all about, hey, don't help the other person, right? How does it match? You know, helping someone is just a side product. Right, of, being, uh, of making money, of being a doctor, that kind of thing, okay? Not always generally true, okay, but just uh, as an observation. But I want to go to this, where sometimes we can see, if we have a wrong view, let's just say someone's working a certain job and says, oh, I told that person, should not have that job. Now he works as an officer. Now he works as whatever. He's killed, he's maimed. Now he works uh, as a nurse. Look, that person's sick. Now it's all of this. And then we have a wrong view. We're ignorant, and then we also are hostile. Where we feel like, okay, someone, what happens? Very likely, we live in San Gabriel Valley. We're population LA. What happens if someone gets sick in our church? Do we often right away say, okay. Now, I think we have to be careful, but do we right away say, oh, they're entered the, into the leprechauns of the, uh, uh, the colonies of, not leprechauns, what do you call those? Uh, leprosy, not leprechauns. A colony of leprechauns is something else, okay? Colonies of, uh, uh, of leprosy, and that's how we are. But is that necessarily the whole fully biblical view? Is that fully the whole biblical view? Today I want to look at this so that Jesus Christ is going to address full on that we can have a wrong man-centered view of suffering. So that when we know here of somebody that suffers, so that when we hear someone that has a, I want to challenge just a little bit and say, oh, okay, uh, that's terrible on them. Maybe they didn't wash their hands. How do you know for sure? I mean, yeah, of course, you need to wash your hands. But how do we know that for sure? How come, how do, sometimes you can play, all blame and say, see, they shouldn't have gone to work. They shouldn't have done all these things. But I want to challenge us today with three warnings of a wrong man-centered view of suffering. So that we would actually, instead of, we would have sympathy and empathy rather than say, oh, you know what? Oh, I got to avoid them or whatever else, okay? So I want to have three warnings today. And this is the point, if you're taking notes, this is going to be the three points that we're looking at today. Point number one. Beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to ignorance. Okay? Beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to ignorance. This is found in verses 3 to 17. Uh, verses 3 to 17. Beware, point number one, beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to ignorance. This is in verses 3 to 17 for those of you guys that are taking notes. 
Second point is beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to hostility. Okay? That leads to hostility. This is in verses 8 through 34. Okay? Point number two, beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to hostility. Okay? By the way, all three points is going to have beware of man-centered view of suffering. So if you're taking notes to make it quicker, you could put dot, dot, dot. Each one is, number one is ignorance, at least ignorance. Secondly is lead to hostility. Okay? Let me say this again. Beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to hostility in verses 8 to 34. That's the second view. And then now is the third view. Beware of man-centered view of suffering that becomes blind to Jesus. That becomes blind to Jesus. This is in verses 3 and also in verses 35 to 41. Okay. Let me review again all three points for those taking notes. Number one, beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to ignorance in verses 3 to 17. In verses 3 to 17. Number two, beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to hostility. In verses 18 to 34. In verses 18 to 34. And thirdly, beware of man-centered view of suffering that becomes blind to Jesus. Is taught in verses 3 and in verses 35 to 41. So with these three points, let us now look at our first point. Which is beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to ignorance. Let's look at setting up this context of what's going on. Look with me in verses 1. We see the setting right away. We're introduced that there's a man who's suffering. According to verse 1, he's been suffering. What's his suffering? Is that he is born blind. Okay? He is born blind. Okay? Now, you would expect that the Jews who have the Old Testament would have known about what the Bible teaches about suffering. Places like in the book of Job, where it says that sometimes you suffer, is not because of anything bad or anything wrong you have done, okay? That we live in a sin-filled world, a part of being the curse is that sometimes there are such things as victims. There are such things as people that have had bad things happen to them, not because of some individual sin. You would think they would have known that. But just like us today, just before we judge the Jews also as well, we could be like that too. We have even more books of the Bible than even the Jews. We have the New Testament. Even more crystal clarity. And yet, how many of us could be in a land where the Word of God is so rich, we provide it. So many BibleGateway.com, so many English versions of the Bible, and yet we could also be what? A famine in the land of biblical illiteracy. So in looking at this, you see that there is this man born blind, and then the disciples ask a question in verses 2. The question they ask Jesus respectfully, they call him rabbi, which means teacher, is this. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he will be born blind. Do you see the assumption here? The assumption is right away they see someone suffering and they assume the assumption right away. Their presupposition is there must be a sin involved. Why? Because of this man's sin. Okay? They, they would say, is this the man that sin is why he's been born blind? Or, and also as well, they, I think you would even say they might even be a bit better than Job's friends. Remember? Job's friends were like, oh, Job, you're suffering. Maybe it's because of your sin. Maybe it's something you've done wrong. What is the secret sin you're hiding? Okay? Right. But now the, the disciples could almost pat themselves on the back and say, Hey, we're better than Job's friend. Maybe it's not this guy's sin, but then it's still not fully biblical too. They say, Oh, maybe it's his parents' sin. That's why he's been born blind. By the way, this is the first question in verses 2. But as we look at this book in John chapter 9, this is not going to be the last question. In fact, there's going to be a lot of questions raised. I think this book, is, this story is incredibly ironic. And poetic also is one substance. You're going to see questions in verse 2. You're going to see question in verse 8. You're going to see question in verse 10. You're going to see question in verse 12, 15, 16, 17, 19, 26, 27, 35, 36, and 40. Okay? And there's 41 verse. All these questions. That's going to come important later on for the point. Okay? 
Also as well, Jesus answered this question as to why this man was born blind is in verses 3. His answer right away is in verses 3. Look with me in verses 3. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Remember this point. It is very important for the rest of the chapter. Jesus says, your question is even wrong to his disciples. You're saying there's something wrong with sin. This why this man is born blind, whether it's his own sin or that of a man. And now God is saying this, through Jesus Christ is saying this. It's none of those things. But there's a deeper reason you haven't considered. Perhaps God might allow this suffering so that the work of God might be displayed, so that it might be for the purpose of God's glory. But then as we pick the story up, as we see our first point, you see in light of the fertility question, Jesus switches now instead of a who to a why in his answer. It's why is because it's for the glory of God. It's not a question of sin and who's sin. He shows that the question is flawed. He shows that the question is flawed and he points this. And now Jesus' unusual speech turns to himself. Now it's no longer about him, he, the blind man, but now Jesus turned his attention in an unusual way, towards himself. Look with me in verses 4. Look with me in John chapter 9, verses 4. He says, we, notice here now he's focusing on the disciples. You see that? But he's not saying you. He puts himself with, himself with them. We must work the work of him who sent me. Then notice, it's not just focusing on disciples now. He's focusing on himself. And with this astounding statement. Now I can imagine... If I was there that day, if most of us there, we might be very confused. We're talking about this blind man and he becomes theoretical. Like, hey, what is wrong with this man? And by the way, did you see the irony of the scene? They're talking about this blind man right there, okay? They're talking, I mean, the guy's blind, but he can hear, right? This is, you remember, you know the scenario sometimes where people, they see someone that's blind. Oh, you're blind. They raise their voice louder as if they're deaf, right? They're talking about this man right then and there. Say, hey, who's sitting There's no consideration whatsoever. And Jesus turns around and says, hey, what about you guys? Are you focused on the work of God? And then he's now focused on himself. Unusual statement. Verses 5. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. He's now saying, hey, how is this all connected? We're going to see that God allowed this so that people would see Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And then he does something unusual in verses 6 in terms of his action. An unusual words followed by unusual action in verses 6 to 7. It says, when he has said this, he spit on the ground. By the way, back then, in that world, people looked down upon those that are what? With that illness. They would think it's the result of what? A wrong view leads to ignorance. We say, oh, this man here is blind because of his sin or his parents' sin. This man probably is used to being looked down upon. As a man right there, he's probably used to begging as the only way of survival. He probably has heard that sound very many times before, the sound of what? And what does that usually follow? So yeah, spit, right? Right? He's probably used to people spitting down upon him. After all, he's listening to this conversation. Imagine, eyes closed. You hear this person say out loud, without no consideration or your feelings, everything else. Hey, why is this man, uh, what is this, is this a sin or his dad, right? Or his mom? And then, and you think, oh, okay, the work of God. I'm ready to receive the work of God. But Jesus does an unusual step. Is that he doesn't spit on this man. He spits on the ground. He made clay out of spittle, 
and apply the clay to his eyes. And you're like, okay, well, this is unusual. Usually I just receive the spitting directly, but I don't know what he's doing, but now he's mixing it up with mud. What kind of bad thing is he doing? This is, seems like it's not very nice. And then in verse 7, he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed. And an unusual result happened. He came back seen. This pool of water is in the southwest of Jerusalem. Why there instead of any other pool? I think we'll, we'll talk about that in our third point of our message. But this man was instructed to wash. And I think at this point he had faith. Because he went, he followed what Jesus Christ said, and he came back seen. But I love the irony of the story. Suddenly, the sto- suddenly now he could see. Everything, the focus now is on that, this blind man. Okay? Everything in this story now becomes the blind man takes center stage in the story and Jesus Christ, the healer, gets to the background, okay? And by the way, think about this for a moment. This man was seen in this society as so unimportant. People could talk bad about him, right over him right there, okay? With no consideration, no whispering at all. And now suddenly, Jesus Christ goes to the backdrop and he takes center stage. And what we're going to see with our first point is also beware of a man-centered view of suffering that leads to ignorance. We're going to see that reaction to this unusual event was one of ignorance in verses 8 to 17, okay? In verses 8 to 17. But as we look at this, pay attention to details. I think this story is very rich. Look in verses 8 to 12. You see and begin with the people's ignorance. In verses 8, how do we know the people resulted in ignorance? Because of the fact that they asked the question. Again, a second time a question is asked in this story. Look with me in verses, uh, the first question was asked by his neighbors. I love this. It says, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as beggar were saying, Is, this, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Okay? His neighbors were asking this question. I, I'm chuckling here for a moment, okay? Uh, you guys all know your neighbors, sort of? I know we live in L.A. We might not necessarily know our neighbors as well, okay? But in, in a society that's much more close quarter than us, they're asking this question. They see this man walking, seeing. And they're asking this question, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Suddenly, in a world that looks down on people, probably people didn't pay attention as much to someone they looked down upon. True or not? How many of us remember the last beggar that we saw? How many of us remember what exactly clothes they wore? The shoes and everything else. Here is the sad scenario that they probably didn't even consider him so much that they don't even know what he lives, looks like. Even though he's a neighbor, perhaps for years, in a world where the real estate market back then is not where it's much social mobility. They are neighbors with him and they don't even know for sure when they see this man, whether or not for sure this is the one because they didn't pay much attention to him. Whether or not this was the same man. Then you look at verses 9. This question led to an argument among his neighbors. It says, others are saying, this is he. And others are saying, no, he just merely looks like him, okay? You guys see this? They were, before, they were, don't have clear in their memory bank of what this individual looks like, okay? This is not a person that will be a celebrity that people remember, what's the last thing you wore because you're some kind of Instagram influ- influencer or whatever else like that, okay? This is the man, they're, here, just, they're like, oh, he's not him. How could it be him? All of this is going on. And they don't even remember enough in their memory bank to say, is this the man or not? Which leads to his second question by his neighbor in verse 10. So they're saying to him, How then were your eyes open? First time we see the man directly ask the question. 
You remember this earlier? Earlier, Jesus' disciples were even talking about this man, and no one was talking to him at all. They say, hey, uh, we know, are you, they didn't even ask, hey, is it because your sin? You know your own life better? Could you fill us in? No one was talking, they were talking about him, but they didn't talk to him. Until Jesus Christ for the first time says what? Go, be washed to the pool of Siloam. And now you see the disciples, uh, correction, his neighbors perhaps for the first time paying attention to and asking him a question. And then you see his answer in verses 11 and 12. Look at his answer. Verses 11 and 12, he answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. I mean, I imagine this is, I mean, he's describing everything, okay? He didn't just say Jesus. Notice the detail. It's exactly everything else that was said. I think he's sharing. He's probably, for the first time talking, that people are actually listening to him. Okay? Giving him the attention at the time of the day. And look at verses 12. Then he says, they asked him now a third question, okay? Which I, I you know, uh, I mean, I mean, this is a pretty funny story. If you're not laughing, you're wrong, okay? Uh, or not, you're wrong, but you don't appreciate Jewish humor, okay? Verses 12. Then they say to him, where is he? Okay, I mean, think about it for a moment. They're asking a man that was blind. Where is he, okay? They're asking a man that was born blind, that was just healed, going to the post alone left this guy and they're not asking where is he I mean how can he tell who the guy looked like because before when last time he, the guy was talking to him, he was blind he went over there somehow he's able to see and they're asking him this question do you guys see the incredible irony this incredible story is funny okay and then he said I do not know okay so you see the ignorance in light of they're asking him the third question here okay so now in light of this what are they going to do they're going to take it to the experts okay by the way i think if there's one thing we learn from even this virus is sometimes beware of trusting in human experts okay you guys realize that even the virus thing a lot of people you know like hey, maybe there shouldn't be travel do you guys know when you know when they finally stopped flights cdc and even the world health organization was still saying don't cancel flights in fact, the, you would think the guys that are businessmen, right, would be the ones that say, oh, let's drip it into the very last possible moment. It's the airlines that actually start, what, canceling lots of flights first, okay? Canceling flights, a lot of flights. Even at the same time when, you know, the World Health Organization and CDC was still not saying, hey, don't cancel flight and everything else, which also shows, hey, there's a danger of relying. So they're taking it now to the experts. Who then could take the expert, the question of who this guy is and what's going on? They took it back then. To the religious experts, the religious leaders in verses 13. And yet you're going to see, because of a man's inner view of suffering, there are also ignorance is on display. The baffled neighbor turned the religious leaders for help in verses 13 by taking them to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. And now there's an incredible irony also as well. These guys are now going to ask questions. Their first question is in verse 15. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received sight. So they're basically asking the same what? Questions, right? They're asking the same questions. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, I wash, and I see. Do you see the same pattern? Ask questions by a blind man, and the religious man answer. And the same pattern also as well. Verses 16. Where because he has answered, they're now even arguing. It led to an argument among Pharisees. There also is not a consensus among his neighbors of what's going on of who he is, and there's the same thing that's going on even among the religious experts. Isn't it so amazing 
The neighbors are now even not even sure if this is their neighbor. Or then they should definitely be the one that know. Here the religious leaders should be able to interpret this biblically uh, in terms of God's lens, in terms of scripture. And they're not even understanding what's a consensus of what's going on. Because in verse 16, therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. An interpreting question is, what's going on? And is Jesus the Messiah? Okay. By the way, you also see this? Evidence sometimes is not the main issue. It's our presupposition in the heart of our heart. There's an evidence, and they'll right away say, it can't be, because he was healing on the Sabbath. How could it be on the Sabbath? You heal someone, okay? Which then leads to the Pharisees' ignorance to ask a second time a question in verse 17. So they said to the blind man again, Why do you, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he, the blind man, said he's a prophet. Do you see the irony? The religious experts should have been able to take the scriptures, which, by the way, you, one of the ways you know, anyone can walk around and say they're the Messiah and make you drink Kool-Aid. But the Bible makes it clear the way you know Jesus Christ is the Messiah is he's able to do miracles, okay? He's able to do miracles. And then they could take the scripture and could have interpreted this in light of everything he said, but they don't do that. They're ignorant of the scripture. So they're now going to him and asking him, do you see the irony? They should know the scriptures. But now... They're ignorant and asking this man how to interpret Jesus Christ is. And again, incredibly ironic. And notice the man says he's a prophet, okay? Earlier, all he has done in verses 17, I think his, his mind, his brain has sl- slowly started ticking. Notice earlier, in the beginning, when he first got healed, he said the man who's called Jesus. Now he is thinking in his mind, the more questions he's asked, he's thinking about this too. I've been blind, and now I see, and he's claiming to be Messiah, what is going on here? And then now he upgrades him to what? He is a prophet. Okay? He is a prophet. So we see here what's going on. So in terms of application of our first point, if we have an unbiblical view of understanding of suffering, is to display the glory of God. We can also display the ignorance of our neighbors and our Pharisee, the Pharisees as well. So I think it's very important, before we even go in further as application, Please study the Word of God in terms of view of suffering, a biblical view. By the way, I think uh, studying a biblical view of suffering is a preventative medicine, if I could use a medical analogy. It's better to understand a biblical view of suffering before you go through massive trials and suffering as the mooring of that, okay? Because uh, I, I realize even as a pastor, when people suffer in the hospital, that's not the time I go over there to say, hey, let's go over the outlines. I've got an eight-part series on suffering, right? That's not the time because they're suffering, okay? So it's better to know ahead of time before that. And by the way, usually when people are suffering, I think the biggest thing, we're there for comfort or our presence first, okay? If we can learn something biblically, it's there not to say so much everything, even if, if they're hurting and everything else, not just correct every single part of their theology right then and there, okay? It's just to show your presence. There is a time and place for that, okay? So also as well, make sure you're not being judgmental of people who are suffering and automatically assume you're better than them or automatically assume they're doing something wrong is why they have this, okay? Listen, we live, the reality is this. Going to church doesn't, it should not be a rabbit's foot of saying, oh, I'm going to go to church, therefore, uh, therefore I won't have a virus. By the way, going to church could also mean you have a virus. I'm going to be clear, okay? But I also think the reality is there's risk everywhere involved. But I also want to say this also as well. When someone, the reality of living in L.A., of picking this up is very likely, okay? You know, in terms of just, uh, you know, more than if you're in a rural area. I don't want to, okay, I don't want to full panic mode, okay? 
but at the same time, I think it's just being realistic. But also as well, the reality of someone picking it up, not because of something they've done terribly wrong, okay? You know, it's just interesting how, right, the news says, hey, don't be around, 250 or more, and then everyone's all where? You find everyone? If, Costco. <laughs> grocery stores, Walmart, whatever else, okay? And congregating people also as well. So, re- and yet, you do need survival. You do need to pick up your weekly groceries, that kind of thing, okay? But at the same time, keep this in perspective. Let us not be ignorant. Know how God does things unusually also as well. Should humble us rather than us being proud and say, oh, we know exactly why this person suffered or exactly what this is going on. Be very slow in saying, thus says the Lord, this is because of this, okay? We don't have the full picture. We don't have all the puzzle piece. Which now leads to point number two, okay? Which now leads to point number two. Point number one is beware of a man-centered view of suffering uh, that leads to ignorance. Now, point number two is this. Beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to hostility. That leads to hostility. This is found in verses 18 to 34. Again, beware of man-centered view of suffering that leads to hostility. This is found in verses 18 to 34. I'll pick up my pace a little faster. People with a wrong view of suffering eventually will be judgmental towards others. And they will be embittered towards those who are suffering and even also as well those whom God healed. Okay? Let's pick this up again. In verses 18 to 23, things are now going to be escalating. Okay? Things are now escalating. Notice now the Pharisees bring in the blind man's parents. Notice, they, uh, notice in verses 18, it tells us why. They did not believe him, okay? They're really turned off by this man's answer that Jesus has healed him, okay? So they're very turned off. So then they go grab his parents, and they're going to ask him two questions in verses 19. The two questions in verses 19 is this. Number one, is this your son who you say, who you say was born blind? And this question, the second question is, then how does he, how does he now see before we go further, think about this for the parents. They're living in a society where they think when a, someone, if your child is born with some kind of um, issues, some kind of handicap, some kind of physical disability, therefore it's the child's sin or your parents' sin. How do you think it feels like being the parent? Where a society that perhaps very freely say, oh, it's because you're your fault. How many of us could sympathize just putting ourselves a little bit in that shoe here. This parent probably have been shamed so many times throughout this guy's life. And now they're bringing, they could easily say, oh no, the shame has not even stopped. Now they're being quizzed publicly with religious leaders there and an inquiring public. Look at the parent's response to the first question, verse 20. His parents answered and said, we know this is our son. And that he was born blind. What a contrast to the neighbor. Who probably don't love him and care for him. They don't even know for sure it's him. Of course, as their child, they would know this man is theirs. But then notice the response to the second question, verses 21. They said, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Which is true. They weren't there at the moment. They didn't see who Jesus was or who this man was. They weren't there for the whole thing. So their answer is true. But you know what? John, the gospel writer John, uh, led by God, goes a little deep, deeper, say, what's the heart motivation for why they said this? That heart motivation, why they didn't answer the second question, is actually revealed in verses 22 to 23. 
His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. Why? Notice it says, For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, that is Jesus, to be Christ, he was to put out of synagogue. Stop here real quick. That means he'll be kicked out of what? Like their version of church, which might be no big deal for us today because we live in a world today, in modern democratic republic, right? But back then, even in church history, unfortunately, sometimes being kicked out of church means you cannot participate in many parts of society, okay? So here they were, they're, uh-oh, we don't want to be kicked out. And that's why verse 23, they says, for this reason, his parents said he is of age. Ask him. What an incredibly sad scene. Parents who have, this parents who have suffered so much in their life with all the people must have said it to himself, the son was now blind. But even in this moment where they should have been joyful, right? How many of us should have been joyful? Oh man. If you ever feel like uh, you're really bored because you're at home, nothing to do, go to YouTube and look at those videos where people were once blind, but now they see. Or people that were once deaf. And it is incredibly moving, right? When they put the video things on and, you know, and they're able to see it. And it's just like, wow. And the moment of great joy, you look at all those things, it's gone viral, right? And yet, you know, like tens of thousands of clicks, there'll be like 52 that click uh, dislike, right? Which I, blows my mind away, right? Imagine this moment. It could have been the most incredible moment mm-hmm. of greatest joy in their life. It's the most incredible moment of fear that these parents have. Terribly sad that they threw their own son under the bus. Quoting Al Mohler, who's preached this before. And now you see that this blind man who now can see is discovering that the world is even a much more darker place than he could have ever imagined it to be. Now this Pharisee second round with the blind man is picks up in verses 24. So a second time, they call the man who's been blown, down, blown blind. So now, with the parents, they're going to throw a second round of battery, of questions, okay? Note how this time, they didn't begin with a question, but a statement first of what they supposedly know, okay? Notice here, real quick, uh, with me here, in, uh, in verses 24, okay? Uh, in verses 24, notice what they say in verses 24. They say, give God uh, glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. By the way, they're not talking about him now. They're saying, we know Jesus Christ is a sinner. Notice it begins with a statement, a fact. No matter what the presupposition is, it cannot be that Jesus is the Messiah. He must be a sinner because he healed on what? On the Sabbath, okay? He's doing something good and they're saying this is a sin, okay? And scripture is very clear. Woe to those who call what is good evil and what is evil good. And notice the response now. I mean, this guy, he's probably been, people have been dishing him all these bad things all his life. And now, man, he's like, he, look at his response. It's quite, quite profound, verse 25. Whether it's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. What a mark of humility to this man. Admitting what he did not know in contrast to Pharisees' lies. And also, what a great profession of faith and truth, right? By the way, this line, we know this line, do we not? We listen to songs at church a lot. What is this line? What song borrows from this line? The song, what? Amazing Grace. You guys know the story of John Newton? One time a, a slave trader, right? And yet, towards the end of his life, he repented of that and wrote actively and worked with other Christians, including uh, William Wilberforce, who was at the time in Parliament, to try to ban the slave trade, right? To go against that. And yet, towards the end of his life, he was getting more and more blind, losing his sight. 
was depending amazing grace, saying, hey, you know what? But now I see things in more clear light than even my physical eyes could see. Where do you get that inspiration from? From here, this blind man. I think that's one thing to realize, that sometimes God's most powerful testimony to a lost and dying world is not the world to see whether or not how rich and influential you are. I think the most powerful testimony is how you suffer and how you die. It's a more powerful testimony to the world. And more questions from the Pharisees. Verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open his eyes? This time the man, the blind man now turns the tables on them and now asks the Pharisees some questions in verse 27. I mean, this is kind of a little bit sarcastic. I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? I mean, he knows full well they want to. He's turning on them and saying, why do you want to know again and again, okay? I do think there's a place of, there is a, a place for the literary device of sarcasm, but I think it's one of those things like salt. Use it sparingly, and, and when everything gets really, really bland, okay? So here we see that he pulls this on them. He says this. And of course, the Pharisees' reaction is more hostility and judgment against this formerly blind man in verses 28 to 29, followed by the reason in verses 30 to 33. For the sake of time, we're rushing this a little bit more. And then their final action is in verse 35. You know what they did with this man? They eventually, verse 34, they kicked him out of society. For the second time in this person's life, he was blind and they kicked him out of society. They didn't welcome him. They didn't treat him nicely. He's able to see. Does that change his predicament? No, because of his time to, in relations to Jesus Christ. So now he is kicked out again. Nothing gained. Except now he sees. And as the story progresses, you also see what other gain. He's, he's able to see Jesus Christ more clearly. The Pharisees in their self-righteousness and man-centered view of suffering has become spiritually blind so much that they had hatred for this blind man. And is, yet the blind man is beginning to see more and more clearly spiritually the spiritual condition of his so-called religious leaders. So I think in application, we must ask, do we also have a right view of suffering? A right view of suffering, you know how you could tell? Is whether or not in line with Scripture is, do you have more bitterness? Or do you have more, what? Clarity, less bitterness. Whether the suffering of others, hatred of others, or whether also as well your own life when you suffer, will you be more embittered that God's taking away things from your life or you see God working and yet there'll be joy in the midst of the pain? Let us now go to the third point. Let us now go to the third point. Our third point for our message is beware of man-centered view of suffering that becomes blind to Jesus. Beware of man-centered view of suffering that becomes blind to Jesus. This is in verses 3, and then we'll move on to verses 35 to 41. Wrong view of suffering will blind us from seeing Jesus as He truly is. We Therefore, we need to see our suffering correctly. And the right view of suffering is we need to see all of it is for the glory of God and is to reveal Jesus to others. Don't forget verses 3. Let's turn back to verses 3. Jesus answered, It was neither this man's sin nor his parents' sin, but it was so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Jesus makes it very clear in the beginning of the story, and this is so important, this is the hook for the rest of the story, is why did this all happen? You see, if you only go through human lens, you might even say, okay, it's not even worth being healed, being blind. Because look at how much more heaps of insult does he receive. But I would say, no, you know what, this story, I'm... 
We should say, praise God, he was blind. We should praise God that he's uh, able to see. Not because the blindness is a gift in of itself. Not because sight is in itself a, a blessing, which it is. But it's more than that. The tr- greater value is that you see the working of God and that Jesus Christ is being declared and preached to others so that others will know about the great love and sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I love this story. He steps out, remember? If this was a play, it's almost like Jesus begins in, in the opening act. He steps away and the rest of the act is, is the blind man and everyone else, okay? And then now in the closing act, Jesus enters in again in verses 35. But when he enters in this picture, I think there's a sense of love and compassion. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Again, like I said, there's a sense of love here since a man was blind and didn't know what Jesus looked like. And Jesus took the initiative to what? To seek him out after hearing the bad news. Okay? After hearing the bad news. That he's been kicked out of the synagogue and the rest of society. And Jesus begins asking a questions, okay? Again, the story is incredibly rich with so many questions, okay? But the reason why Jesus asked this question, unlike the other one, it's not out of ignorance. I think he does this as a way of pointing others to himself as Savior. By beginning with a question in the third person, about talking about himself. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who's the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. And the scripture says the Son of Man will take away sin. So he asked him, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, he's more concerned than just whether or not he could physically see for the physical, temporal world right now. He's going deeper by looking beyond into the spiritual world, into the matters of eternity, for the eternal matter of the well-being of this man, by asking him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And you see a right view of suffering. Understand that suffering often works in us to soften our hearts to receive Jesus, right? If you listen to a lot of people's testimony of how they came to Christ, it's very rarely do you ever hear, and sometimes there is, sometimes there is, but rarely ever do you hear a testimony that people say, you know what? Wow, you know, I pray to God to give me the American dream. And wow, God gave me a nice car. Wow, God gave me an electric car. Wow, look over here, there's a nice house with a nice white picket fence and I have my 2.5 kids, right? And therefore I became a Christian. The reality is very few people become a Christian that way. In fact, most people can have those things and what? And say, oh, I have it all. I don't need who? Jesus Christ. A right view of suffering understands that when sometimes God whispers in a loving way, God is big. God is huge. God, He could easily strike us all dead just instant, just like that with all our, all our sin, and we would rightly deserve it. But God sometimes uses, I know C.S. Lewis says, pain is a megaphone uh, uh, that God speaks to us. Uh, I'm not a fan of C.S. Lewis. He has a lot of bad theology. But I would even say, you know what? Sometimes pain and a lot of the infinite power of God is even God's whisper to us gently to say, turn back to me. And then in verses 36, the man responds to Jesus' question is, do you believe in the Son of Man? By asking this question. By asking this question in verses 36. Who is he, Lord? that I may believe in him. This man, do you see? He's not just says he believed there is a general idea of Messiah. He's saying to Jesus, who is he? I've heard all the Pharisees argue that this man, you know, you're the one that claimed to be this, right? Or by the way, I think at this point he doesn't know for sure of Jesus. And he's asking this uh, question, right? Who is he? Okay. Who is he that I might believe in him? And Jesus says in verse 37, you have both seen him 
And He is the one who is talking with you. Verse 38, And He said, Lord, I believed, and He worshipped Him. I want to bring this point here, is to say that sometimes believing in Jesus Christ will bring about shame. Okay? Will bring about shame. Sometimes being a follower of Jesus, you know, sometimes I think people are not even afraid of dying. It's, it's not even that, you know? I think it's people are afraid of, is, you know what it is? is a risk of dying shamefully, okay? I believe people could be willing to die for honorable things, yes? Okay? I think people are willing to die for honorable things. That's why people still join the military, because somehow some people think it's honorable, uh, honorable death, right? But I think most of us actually, it's not really afraid of dying in of itself, though we could be afraid, it's a shameful dying. Mm-hmm. My sister brought up a good question last night, texted me, he's like, could we be of help with the Chinese congregation? Could we even maybe perhaps English side be able to even help pick up groceries for those that are older just so that they have less risk of lighting up, getting food, picking up things. And we have a lot of really old 80 to 90 year old grandmothers and grandpas in our church. Could we do this? Right? But some of us, I know, could even be the ideas of, oh, no, no. Well, dying in line, dying because I was lining up grocery just doesn't sound really cool. Right? It kind of sounds shameful. Kind of sounds like a life wasted, right? But to be, you know, to, to die, what? Bungee jumping, skydiving, right? All the other things. Oh, no, it's cool and everything else with that, okay? But I want to challenge us. This, this, this. Some of us even say, I'm going to die for... Listen, someone would even say, and this has happened even in our church, says, you know what? I remember asking somebody before, oh, this part might be edited. Someone said before, like, I was, oh, are you interested in ministry? And this person said, yeah. Oh, I'm interested in ministry. But I want to be hardcore, not like soft minister in America. I want to go to a foreign field and die for Jesus Christ. You don't see this guy here. Ask him, hey, where are you at church? <laughs> oh, I'm afraid of coming. Coronavirus, you know, mm. right? And the idea, of, uh, even before there's even a lockdown, you're not even here already. And you're going to go die for Jesus and say, oh, Jimmy, you're just, you're just soft. You're just softcore, not hardcore. You're, you just go teach a little bit. But the real hardcore, those are out there. Dude, where are you? Where are you? Again, I'm not taking away, uh, you know, older people should be. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But some of us are so into all that. But then if it's not as honorable, if it's just so mundane, risking buying groceries for somebody in line, headaches, we're finding parking, all of that, right? Then we say suddenly, oh, you know what? But you know what? You know what scripture shows here? For being a follower of Jesus Christ means you will be the scum of this world, okay? Let us never forget, Okay? We love to share stories, do we not, of someone, oh, you know, some baseball player, believe in Jesus Christ, oh, we're going to share this, oh, so awesome, right? Or some football player, or whatever else, and all these other things. But then sometimes when you follow Jesus Christ, the world would think you're a weirdo, a wacko, a, a quack. But you know what we say? It's okay, because of the love of Jesus Christ. Because of the fact, as we see this man, Christ has taken his greatest shame, which is sin, dying on the cross for our sins. Let us close in a word of prayer. Dear God, we pray, Lord. Help us, Lord, to not have a man-centered view of suffering. Help us, Lord, to even at this time, to be willing to even serve you and love others in radical ways. Help us, Lord, to be the believer that you called us to be in the season of the life of whatever it is. Help us, Lord. We know we're so weak. I know I'm so weak. But help us, Lord, to think biblically and to live it out. And Lord, help us to minister. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.